Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? It's November 11th, 2022, and you're listening to episode 522 of Waypoint Radio. I'm your host, Rob Zach, and I'm joined by Matthew Galt. Welcome to the show. Thank you for so much for having me to talk about uh, Dad of War Part Two. Uh, speaking of Dad's War, we also have Patrick Klopik. I know. Look, it's the last day of fall. I, ha- I brought my sandals back out. They were put away into the closet, and then I saw seventy-two degrees today, thirty-eight degrees tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> Ragnarok is here for for the Chicago suburbs, but one oh, this last day. The, heat, the warm front is hitting here tomorrow, so tomorrow is okay. Like Seventy. Oh, you get. Oh, you, oh, that's it's Rob. It rules, but it's like it the, sucks. The weather is like up and then right off a cliff. Oh, so <laughs> so I, I don't to, like it at all. Uh, uh, I like oh, I like cooler fall weather. You people, in your we got we privilege. got that. We got that for October. We had like a really plus. Like September was. Colder than normal, but uh, October was we we actually ended up getting a full month. And if you make it to two weeks before November without having to wear a winter coat, I mean, I don't know what else to ask from from the fall, frankly. Uh, and of course, we also have Renata Price. Hello and howdy and hi and hello. So, uh, you know, before we dig into before we dig into uh, God of Works, I know you're y'all are eager to talk about that. Uh, I just want to share a little a little story of to inspire uh, everybody. You know, Chaos Gate Demon Hunters can be a very hard game, and sometimes you hit a mission and you fail it repeatedly, like oh four or five. Well, hold on, you don't fail it. It's just your victory is so costly. You're like, I'm not taking that out. I'm not. We're not. We're not continuing that save. The Imperium you, of Man doesn't fail. It just tries again over and over. It was uh, it was a combination of a weird map layout uh, and a mixture of who was still available to deploy to, to deploy on the squad. So Did you just so randomly you, pick this up. Like, what, what is the context here? Like, we oh, started talking about this game months ago. Like, we're, these we're, streams ended in Dark Tide June? comes out next month, so we're always talking about forty k. Yeah, we're always talking about forty k. <laughs> or next uh, week, rather, it's out next week. Starts <laughs> out next week. The pre-release beta starts the seventeenth. Did I take time oh, off work? Who's to say? Work. Good man. Uh, no, pa- Patrick, l- listen, like uh, football games can be boring. Uh, sometimes you're watching the Bears get rinsed by the Cowboys and you're like, I don't want to get fully invested in this okay, game. All right. I'm just OK, but yeah, I'm going to pull the monitor arm out so I can have uh-huh. this thing floating in front of my couch <laughs> while I look past it to the Bear game uh, and using my razor turret. Uh, with my my headphones draped around my neck, I can sort of lightly follow the sound of the of of demon hunters, but then also watch the bears. 
Can you please have your partner take a picture of this setup the next time it happens? You don't have to share it with the wider internet. I just need I I need to see it. We'll do. I will. Uh, yeah, I think I think it will. Uh, you know, it'll be another thing that people will see, and people will be like, "Wow, what a great idea!" Rob's right about so many things. Uh, anyway, sorry. Continue. You're no, in the I mean, same game. So the, uh, the the main thing about it was. It was just a mix of like I I had for whatever reason I had ended up in a situation where I didn't have like any of my teleporter dudes up and running for this mission. And it turns out all my tactics in Demon Hunters are predicated mm-hmm. on teleporting to an advantageous position and and winning. And the it's other the thing was the objectively correct way to play the game. And the other thing was they uh it was a no critical hits mission. I was doing the the little extra bonus uh like win condition, which of course I did. And so it was this, uh, it was two apothecaries, a slow dude with a sword. Uh, sorry, it was two purgators, the machine gunners, an apothecary and a very low level. Um, what's the prestige class? Basically the dude with the sword is like the paladin. Uh, I, either way, the first battle you hit, so the missionary got to take out the big fucking chaos trees. Okay. And it was in this like plaza, and every time I played this mission, I would trigger like four or five pods during this opening like brawl, uh, as everyone fanned out, and I could not like I could not handle this mission. And of course, every time it went to shit, it was after like an hour of play, right? Uh, and so like I walked away from the game for months. I was like, this is just too annoying, and it's not even rated that hard a mission. It's just it's it's too annoying, and so. I went away. I forgot about it. And then I discovered my my cool little way of playing video games while watching sports. Uh, and move over, move over Steam Deck. Hello, uh, Ergotron monitor arm. Allowing you to just like have the monitor protrude Sorry, into the center of your living room. Which Decepticon is helping you? Uh, the the er- Ergotron, I think. Mm. Maybe it's Ergodox. Either way. No, it's not Ergodox. That's the keyboard. Yeah, it's Ergotron then. Ergotron? Yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know. Does it make the cool noise? Uh, you know, it's it, there's like a lightly, there's a pneumatic quality to it, but it's it's pretty silent. Uh, no. But it, it feels really good. Okay, good. But, uh, you know, it, the, the inspiring thing is in the last, like, in the last weekend, uh, sometimes you go away from a problem for, like, three, four months, and it just clicks. You come back to it, and you have your sort of brainstorm, and you solve all your problems, and all your problems being, of course, this one mission in a tactics game. And you're like, what if I just do an entire... What if I make the first objective the last objective? What if I go all the way around the map mm-hmm. and hit it from behind? And you think it takes longer. You'll think you'll be like, I'm just going to get like swamped by the end of that mission. You won't because every encounter will be so easy and you'll always be working the edge of the map that you'll control every pod. It was mm-hmm. it was the best shit, dude. It was like a running gunfight between my space marines and chaos cultists. Uh, once the first fight started, we never like, you know how the game stops and everyone reloads and you have like a slack moment. Uh, you get your action points and keep moving. Yeah, that never stopped. The entire game was one running fight all the way through the map. And now I'm all the way back in on, on chaos gate demon hunters, baby. I'm still in my waiting period between, I got to that first 
like rough story mission where you've got to take the Inquisitor up to the gate. Do you know what yeah. I'm talking about? Or okay, aboard the Eldar mm. ship. Yes. So I got I got there and I could not for the life of me. I could get all the way into the gate and get to that big boss fight, mm-hmm. and I could not. It was the same similar kind of situation where the people I had that were healed up weren't the right people to be taking into that room. Um, and I eventually, for whatever reason, thought to myself, you know what the problem here is? Uh, I don't know enough about the Warhammer lore to really so like, grapple with this. That's so often the, the problem. So now I'm on book three of the Eisenhorn saga. Of course. I've, <laughs> I've read the first three of the Horus Heresy, read the original trilogy. I understand the Grey Knights better. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes I wonder what I would do with the time if I didn't have children. And then I would, get the answers on this show on a regular basis. Yeah, you'd be hip deep in 40K. It'd be real bad. It'd be real <laughs> ugly. Uh, and I want to get back to Chaos Gate. But again, like, no, Vermintide released a new ma- yeah. you got more grimoires yeah. Uh, yeah. to pour yeah. over. Absolutely. Well, and, and Dark Tide's out next week. So, I mean, that's like everything's going out the window. The there are many ways to serve the Imperium. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Well, you're just not ready yet. You're it's, not ready. Like you're you're doing well. You're not ready yet. Yeah, I'm still Goku unf- on the ship going to Earth, reading books, exactly doing push-ups. It would be unfair to expect you to excel tactically under these conditions. Thank you, Ren. Conditions of let's be honest, ignorance. Yeah, because I started this game going like, who's grandfather? Why do people keep calling this chaos god grandfather? I don't understand. Yeah, this, now, was, this was huge for me. I was like, oh, like, <laughs> that's like the endearment they have for Nurgle. Yeah, uh-huh. okay. now I get it. Yeah. yeah. And then it sort of makes me wonder, like, would he be all bad? Or is or is Nurgle just misunderstood? Uh, really, he's like a healing him. god, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rejuvenation all the, the time. I can't tell where the bit started and the sincerity began. There's no bit. <laughs> There's no bit with 40k. How dare you? There will never be a bit. Isn't 40k just sort of a long bit? But also very serious. Yeah, but uh, you come back around. Yeah. If you're, you, loop, you loop back around to... Yeah. Uh, oh, it's like a sonic cycle. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm so sick that I got the, the Magic the Gathering secret lair Warhammer 40k decks this week. And forced my board game group to play it with me. <laughs> forced? Wow. How, the, yeah. how did You're it go? You're a sadist. <laughs> and now dest- it destroyed the board game group. <laughs> uh, the Necrons won, as they often do. Real 40k heads will know that that's where the, the main story is going. Um, but that was a good time. Everyone <laughs> everyone, everyone had a good time. Everyone enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Wait, Galt, are you saying that uh, everyone's eye has been on the Imperium and then the Tyranids and then Chaos, but actually the ultimate fate is the Triumph of the Necrons? Well, you know, they've figured out how to live forever. They figured out how to quell the warp, and they figured out how to make the best uh, Warhammer 40k Magic the Gathering deck. So, yeah, it's it's <laughs> inevitable. They are inevitable. Uh, in, true, in true magic fashion. Uh, so... You know, Patrick, you alluded to the fact, like, what would life uh, be like if, you know, you didn't have kids? Now you've got a taste of, of what's possible. But maybe also it's it's time to sort of tackle what would life be like if you had a kid mm. and you were a God-slaying murder dad uh, trying to trying to start a new life in in, in Norse mythology. Uh, yeah, uh, both, uh, Galt and I have been playing, I, I have, pl- I, I've pretty much only exclusively played 
Ragnarok for the last week and change. I'm like 15 hours. How do I vaguely explain to Galt where I am in the story? Um, I are we well, first of all, are we we're we're street dates over like we can be spoilery on this cast. Well, I mean, it just came out. So let's like let's be cautious on what that, you know, you you know, uh, if you're 15 hours in. I think we're maybe about in the same place. I met I uh, met up with someone's brother and freed them from. I think we're in the exact I fought a same big place. Li- I fought a big lizard that came through a war pole. Uh, maybe that's the best way to explain it. I the am, best boss fight in the game so far. Yes, I am in the uh, immediate side questing aftermath of that. Oh, moment. an orb. The orb. The the, the uh, Brock's uh, buddy wants you to go find an orb. Yes. Yes, yes, okay. yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, okay, so we're in the same place then. We're in the right. exact same place. So, yeah, place. okay, so we're yeah, roughly in the same spot. Like, seems like that's some, anywhere between one-third and one-half of, of the game, depending on uh, the pacing. But uh, where um, where did you land on the, the last God of War? Uh, you and I tend to, you and I play a lot of these sort of, like, big single-player story-driven things. Uh, we, uh, we, we both weren't all that into Horizon, like the most recent one. I fell off that, and I don't know that I'll ever... Same. At this point, I'm kind of hoping the Netflix TV show will just tell me what happened <laughs> in that game because I just it's hard for me to imagine going back to slight, despite quite liking the the first Horizon. But where where did you end up on the first the most you know not first but you know the, the, the most recent God of War reboot from a couple years back? It's it's funny you mentioned Forbidden West because I want to talk about it more in relationship to this. Uh, oh and please, like, why? Because something that's been befuddling me, I'm going to answer the question, I promise, but something that's been, but I don't want to lose this train of thought. Something that's been befuddling me as I'm playing this um, is that you've got these two Sony first party titles, um, both of which I really loved the first one. I loved that first God of War. I really did. I thought it was um, very, it was a very interesting take on this character that kind of just tore ass through the early aughts was like this very early aughts video game character just like killing and fucking its way through the Pantheon. Uh, I think the last podcast, Rob, you said like grinding up women to solve puzzles. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then the game just says like, you are, <laughs> you were a piece of shit. Yeah. We're going to find a way to forgive you. Cause we need the narrative to keep going, but also uh, <laughs> you were a piece of shit. You uh, yeah, we have to be better as Kratos says, <laughs> probably the most famous line in the first game. But yeah. And I, uh, and on top of that, like it played really well. It was really fun to explore this world and kind of have this light Metroid, like unlocking the new weapon to get into a different area and find in like, just, it felt good to ax up Draugr and all this stuff. Right. Uh, so I loved it. I loved that first game. I really enjoyed the story. I was excited to see where it was going to go. Um, which is also how I felt about horizon forbidden West or mm-hmm. for horizon, uh, new dawn, zero dawn, zero dawn, the, the first horizon game. And then I, I played maybe the first 10, 15 hours of that Forbidden West. And I just, I felt my soul leaving my body like every time I tried to boot it up and push through. And I just, I couldn't get back into it. Whereas Ragnarok um, is also kind of similar where it's very similar to the first game, I think. Um, It is doing, really kind of focusing on continuing the story. And then as you go into it, it does start to deviate more from the first game, Right. Like you start opening up um, changes. There's a lot more character perspective shifts than there were in the first game, and it's right, just which then different. extend themselves to the combat and, yes. and change up the way the like what is otherwise you know 
uh, I mean, there's skill trees and there's different, but like you sort of fall into a pattern of right. like how you're going to play games like this until they introduce enemies that force you to act slightly differently. And what I've, I really liked about Ragnarok so far without explaining sort of the character and plot beats that lead to it is like it, it, it changes up that frequently enough and for yep. extended periods, not just cameos, but three hours where you're spending like not a fundamentally different, but different enough for the length of the game. I, uh, and I don't want to lose this point on horizon. We'll, we'll loop back around to it in terms of how these games approach what is like spaces of their worlds and how, how you interact with them. But um, I had mentioned in my initial response to this game, having played the first like eight ish hours and other colleagues of mine being like, well, I've played 30 hours. I haven't finished yet. And I'm like, uh, okay. And cause frequently I associate that with a horizon forbidden West or games that here is a giant map full of a lot of bloat, um, that really drags down the stuff that is here. And it is frequently difficult to figure out what should I be focusing my attention on? Not because I just want to mainline the story, but because I want to like, give me a clear sense of what is the good stuff. And then what is here for collectible. And I just want to stay in this world as long as possible. I'll be here for a hundred hours. It's fine. Um, and 15 hours in, like I'm fine with this game being 45 hours. I think it's paced excellently. I'm enjoying every minute of it. I'm like, it's a game where I'm actually excited that the story's not anywhere being over because so far every beat has been. Fun. It starts a little slow, but like once it gets going, yep. it's 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 really good. I'm I like I'm happy for them to take their time and everything that is suggested of all, all, off the beaten path uh, has been worth my time. It is very clearly signposted the kinds of things that man, like just don't. Like well, yeah, the, there, there are like in even in the worlds themselves, some of them that are a little more linear. There are these, uh, there are these things you'll come across that you can't interact with, and the characters are like, "Hey, we don't have the equipment for that," which is like a really goofy, almost fourth wall breaking like moment for a game full of magic, where it's like, "Yeah, but like you could probably just lift me up and I could get over this cliff," but it's like, "No, I don't have whatever wind object is going to let me interact with that," and then it's so clearly. Hey, at some point, much later in the game, you'll get some sort of magical Metroid equipment MacGuffin that if you want to come back to this area and clean up the rest of the objects, we're going to give you other combat encounters a reason to do that. If you just want to keep doing the story, like just keep going down, like keep going down the pipe and you'll you'll be fine. And I just think this game has a really good sense of uh, how players want to spend their time um, different tiers of players of how they want to spend their time. And even when it has open worldish areas, they're not that big, but they're big enough to feel like, Oh, I'm going to spend a couple hours here, but it doesn't feel as though I'm going to spend 30 hours here. Like every spot that I land on is going to have a good puzzle, a good encounter, um, some piece of lore that's interesting. And for a game that is this long and this dense, uh, that's a really hard thing to pull off because, they, it's essentially a linear game that just occasionally goes, ah, I don't know, let's be open for a little while. And, and I think it chooses its its battles uh, well. It's like, here's a wide spot in the road that will have like four or five puzzles kind of scattered around it, right? Um, and they're usually very doable. And there's like one that you're going to have to come back to later in the game. It's clearly signposted. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's something about that as opposed to playing Horizon where your sense of direction is kind of fucked up and like, you don't know like what you can unlock and what you can, you know, right at the beginning. 
Um, and it just, and it feels so overwhelming and I get tired. Well, you, you've talked about open world fatigue, like you were yeah. feeling it particularly, right? Like what was the, uh, before horizon came out, there was another game you and I talked about. You were like, I just can't, it, it was it the new far cry. Uh, it was the new far cry where, yeah, like I, I've tried to play, I've tried to play that twice. And each time my body, like I just, I can't, I can't do it, which is, and it's really funny because I put 200 hours into Elden ring for some reason. Totally because it's a very. I don't yeah. think you have to qualify it with for some reason. I think it's because it's, it's an excellent game that for as big. Now I do think that game is too long. I think it is probably. Like <laughs> I finished it in 110, and that game would have been a much better 70 hour game. I think I think it has like a considerable bloat, but it, it, for as big and long as it is, uh, it's dense in the right ways. Right, like it doesn't feel over. Part of that is because. If that game's map had everything you could do as an icon, I think there's a very real chance it would inspire the same sort of exhausted reaction that... Now, granted, I do think the floor of, like, the average side piece of content in Elden Ring is a lot higher than what you're you're seeing in a lot of open-world games. I think that is true, so I think, like, that's important. But even in, in its map, it makes the player curious, they're rewarded for that curiosity... It, it handles the notion of exploration of an, an enormous map much better than your average, it like, or at least these these Ubisoft style, Ubisoft adjacent sort of games where they're they're the full Golden Corral model of of yeah. quests, <laughs> uh, of quest layouts. Yeah, you know, go through the vegetable line, and then maybe you can go to the the chocolate fountain at the end. Um, yeah, I think that that's. I think that you've kind of hit on something. One of the reasons that Ragnarok feels so good to me right now is because we haven't had a lot of AAA games this year. Uh, and I like big, dumb, big budget video games. I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's a kin- I, a God of War Ragnarok is I'm playing a Marvel film. Yes, right? like yeah, it is, absolutely. Go read the Polygon review of Ragnarok, which was not over the moon for it, but like essentially, was like it's kind of okay. This is like a big, dumb. Occasionally makes you cry. Yep. Uh, action film, which is really what a lot of I get out of the Mar- I was like, I like these characters, I like this big dumb action. I'm having a good time. Uh, like, it's okay that it's not more than that. And that's not dismissive of what it's trying to accomplish. It just is what it is and knows it and does it really well. And I, I when someone vocalized that comparison, like a light, like a light bulb went off for me. I was like, yes, like this is, this game is absolutely strumming the same chords that I'd get out of movies like that. And it's, and it's nice to have that experience not tied to, because it's been tied to this for so long now, a big Ubisoft style open world checklist game where you have to slog through all this shit to see the big character and story beats and have the, the good gameplay moments, right? Um, this game is checklist. But you, it does. You press left on the touchpad and buddy... You got checklists. How many Odin's Ravens are here? How many legendary chests are here? Um, it's something that I even have difficulty articulating of like, wh- uh, why does this one work for me and the others don't? I, I do think in some level it's as basic of if you were to take, if God of War when it started, you could just like open the map and you could see all 45 hours or whatever this is in front of you. I do think there's something about the presentation and how it is doled out in the in this piecemeal fashion, where at some point, I mean, the game signpost very early on, like, hey, here's a world door. 
you're eventually going to be able to go to all these, like, here are all the hubs, you know, like, you can only go to one right now. Um, and there's something about the way they pace you through what is otherwise going to be a big world. And even in the sections that you're going to, they, they, they structure even the geometry in a way that feels limiting. Like, it's all, and you're in also, some ways, I think it's, it's not much further from the games we are describing, like, in, in practice, but in presentation, in, like, and how I experience it, it feels so fundamentally different that um, I don't know. I, I find myself I find myself spending the time to go find things in this game in a way that I don't in others. And maybe that's just because it's like, just take a nibble off of it. Like we're not going to give you the whole meal in front of you because the meal is overwhelming. The buffet is overwhelming. I also think that there's something about you're constantly in conversation with your companions as you're exploring these spaces. Yeah. Like every time you come around the corner and see a new puzzle or a new box or have a new combat encounter, there's a little bit of dialogue. It may not be much, but it's just enough to where the story is constantly and it's the game's themes, uh, which I also want to talk about. And I'm wondering if it's going to stick the landing, but are constantly being fleshed out as you move forward. Right. Um, and I, I think that that does a lot of work too, because a lot of these big AAA games, you end up feeling a little lonely as you're exploring. It's very, the world. it's very isolated, despite the fact that there are like giant creatures around, like mm-hmm. flowing. Like there's, there's so much work. You can see the, the art, like the pro, like you can see it all around you, and yet it can feel very isolating. And I think the very snappy way that they incorporate the dialogue and recognize, I will never, the first, the, the the last game did this, and this one does it again. It was funny when they did it before, and it's still funny here, is when you encounter new characters that, uh, like, frequently in this game, you'll be, like, you have a main character, you have a support character, and then you'll have some collection of, like, NPCs that are just along for the ride. Um, and whenever you have a new one, they will always, always make some sort of brand new witty comment of, like, when you, like, this game so frequently is, like, you come to an area and you can go right and you can go left, and to the right is... And this is being reductive. Like, it's it's dressed up much better than this. But to the go to the right is to just keep moving down the plot. It's like, there's there's the icon over there. If you want to keep the story going, follow that. But like, oh, on the left is, like, a puzzle. And, like, when you solve that, you'll get a big red glowy chest with maybe a new special attack. And, like, without fail, the characters will be like, Kratos, the fuck you doing, bro? Like, we like do you know that the apocalypse is coming? Like, what are you doing? And then, you know, Atreus or someone goes... Oh, yeah, my dad really likes to track down every chest in an area. Like, there might be valuables there. And there's some... It's similar to where games have grunts. Like, this game just has, like, 300 variations of my dad just loves to loot. Let it's, him do it. It makes him happy. Is it is it, is it never the same line. Yes, they're, they're absolutely yeah. making him. Well, especially, I don't want to, like, spoil the character, but, like, there's a major character you... Uh, let's say rescue and then they're with you for a little while and this character over and over cannot get over like what kratos he's so exhausted with you stop and it's so it's genuinely funny it's genuinely funny he just wants to get through the task and right but it's recognizing what the player's doing right like Mm -hmm. it's, it's speaking to your point galt of the game like these side quests are not just i mean you know whatever your definition of filler is but like the game treats them as important because the characters comment on your actions. And then it makes the player feel valued in the time they're spending doing it. Um, 
regardless of like what actually is in that chest, which might just be some more hack silver and some some timber. Well, and also like to the point of loneliness, like because I watched my uh, wife play a fair bit of Forbidden West, and she she loved. It. I mean, game looked incredible, uh, and yeah. I think if I weren't quite so burned out on anything Assassin's Creed style, I I might have been maybe more. Uh, it looked like a better one of those, but also mm-hmm. I'm just like, I, I don't know. But, you know, when you talk about that, that theme of loneliness, right, it, it takes so much writing and so much effort to create like this uh, God of War or like Guardians of the Galaxy sense of like companionship. And you see in games that don't carry it off, like in like in your horizons, there are moments when you're with an NPC, but it's kind of the rock star model of, they are a awkward little drone that follows you around and a narration plays. They sort of monologue at you or there's an exchange and those can be well-written or not, but yeah, you don't have that sense that the game is observing you. You don't have the sense that like this person who is a companion to the story is a companion to your character really, because you're just kind of waiting for the moment for the animatronic to go slack and like stop by a fire or something and be like, I'll, you know, I'll see you next time traveler. <laughs> and on you go to to the next thing uh and you know the 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 games that do make it a priority to create this sense of yeah like uh, like honest to god like companionship and awareness on the game's part of like how you have expressed yourself as a player uh it's it's really profound difference and I, you know, as, as I hear this, I, I also kind of wonder, is it something that, you know, you can only really carry off? Oh, I guess, you know, Guardians is is not a uh, like Sony first party. We threw a billion dollars at it kind of game. Uh, but I but I do wonder if it's something that like. Is copyable. It's expensive. Is yeah, it's, that's it's, the thing. It's, it ha- I mean, you know, like there it's so there is so much writing and like actors and the writing has here. to be great and the writing it, right it would because then it would be grading right like that was the thing that was so striking about guardians and also like that main uh creative director she left idos and is now working on the new mass effect i don't know if that new mass effect will be good but she is directing a bunch of narrative on on that new game which makes me at least excited for the talent that's associated but yeah i, I think i think it is a it's a money thing and a quality thing not just from a production standpoint but from Okay, like if we're gonna make 150 cracks about <laughs> Kratos looting, like they they better be good. Like the player better like feel like they're like that's one of the rewards for going off is that you might get a new piece of dialogue. And even related to this, that is cognizant of the player experience. Galt, uh, every time when you're when you it's like the the world the realm between realms or whatever they call that which is like you know where you you're running along a tree branch yeah and you're, like you're going on like a portal yggdrasil's branches basically yes 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 every time you do that there's a there's a dialogue exchange and you are in control of the character and every time i try to outrun the dialogue to see if i can and you never can the game like is setting the portals and to make sure the player never encounters the thing I encountered in Guardians quite a bit because that game also yep. was extremely talky yep. was I'm I'm just gonna time to idle in this room because I'm afraid that when I go around the corner like the next set of quips are gonna load up and that God of War in general is a broadly very good at transitioning dialogue so that the the, the player never loses that so the player is always moving forward but never 
standing idle to lose like a piece of lore or a piece of interaction between the characters. I've never in this game, despite how much talking happens, managed to uh, stop the characters from finishing a thought because the game is like so cognizant. And is this not true? Have you have you managed to do this? Well, uh, there's a place there's a place where it's a little bit more clunky. Uh, And the first one did this, too, actually. And it's when you are exploring the the like open world areas. Uh-huh. Uh, I noticed it a bunch in the the desert in Alfheim. Yeah. Um, and what it does is like you're you're zooming around and Amir's telling a story, and you get up to a puzzle and you you come you get off of the the thing that you're using to travel. Um, and Kratos is like, well, let's let's put a let's let's stop for a minute so I can figure out this puzzle. But it's then, clunky, but it's like I love that it recognizes yes. you would want to hear the rest of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I and just, then they do get, they do pick it back up when you get back on yeah. when you get back on the sled. Yes, and I, I guess I just like one of those things that I think makes this game work. These last two games in particular is that understanding of the moment to moment player experience, which I think is something we're we're like we're hitting on here with open world games that you know plenty of people like horizon and the new far cry and that's fine like in, in no world am i trying to take that away like I, that's a place where i'm at personally and that i've just played too many of those um and but there's something about that attention to detail of the player experience that is very specific to these god of war games that you see over and over again as you play them that i don't know allows me to engage with it on a level that i think would i would find grating in in, in other games of you know similar caliber I did get a little tired of, and it's really backed off of this, uh, Mimir in the first couple early hours of the game, mostly in the yeah. combat, um, because the game signals to you in several different ways, like when you are surrounded by enemies, you've kind of got a ring and you've got, uh, there's like an arrow that will point behind you that will either be yellow or red to let you know like what kind of attack is coming from behind, and uh, one of your companions will also tell you at the same time. And that gets a little much for me sometimes. Yeah, but that's kind yes. of the only place where it where it become where I've, where I'm annoyed with them. Uh, you you had mentioned you wanted to touch on the the themes. You know, we I talked about it broadly um, as part of my like kind of first impressions for the for the review period. But um, but was there something specific in mind that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I'm really interested. My my big concern right now is if it's going to stick the landing for the things that it's mm-hmm. setting up. Uh, but I'm very excited about what it's building, which is, I think you were talking about, uh, in the first podcast conversation about in, in this one too, about how this guy is a bad guy and let's not think about the things that he's done and let's just move on. Um, I would say that in some part, this game is about, and it's not just Kratos, but it's something that kind of reverberates through every single companion character, every single character almost, um, the consequences of power uh, and the, the the shitty things that you've done in the past uh, and having to confront them um, and not, not being able to make them right, but just kind of how you move forward and how you move yeah, forward this, with the people you've wronged. I mean, the game has a whole, uh, like br- broadly, like w- one of the ways the game operates is you go in, complete a main quest, you kind of finish an area and then it unlocks a side quest that you can still do there called a favor. Mm-hmm. And these favors are either related to characters in your party or like a character you've met. And broadly speaking, it's about trying to right a wrong. 
um like the reveal of like what the first one is is so fucking cool that i don't want to yeah to spoil like it's if i was to even describe to describe it, it uh, it's just such a cool reveal but like it is about like someone like mimir or kratos or atreus like uh confronting something they did and trying to make it right but like so many of the themes of this game over and over at whatever however far i'm through it are essentially about like well you can't and you won't and what are apologies what is it what is like the, the function of grief within an apology and empathy and like you know again like it's a game where you're fighting odin and you know giant lizards but i, I have to admit that i've i found the like broad th- and this is not something that is just like picked up and put down it is it is essentially like i think probably the broad theme of the game is like what is forgiveness across a long life and not how do you how do you yourself make good with that but what does it mean to make good with other people and maybe they don't forgive you in the process because there's no making it right it's just sort of i think as kratos says at one point like just leaving it better than how you found it and learning to move on from that and like as a, a fun, like as a mechanical thing of just like giving side quests more weight like it works really well and and i found like that tied into the main story has been like more effective than just man that odin guy's a real prick and he is oh they make like, you he is they make you understand like what he has done to people and mm-hmm. not just like the scars are not just physical I mean, the the trauma that Odin's policies and power have inflicted on the land. I mean, policies is a good way to put it. There's, yeah. there, there is like, I mean, like there you unwind infrastructure in yes. in, in one of the opening areas um, that is, you know, someone following Odin's guidance, but is still a person who had agency in and how that was implemented. And it's like, basically like how you like the economy you strapped upon these people was awful and has ruined, ruined them and creatures. And part, one of the optional side quests is to go and I mean, Wait. blow them up. <laughs> but <laughs> is this like Odin all father as like municipal machine politician, just remaking the world? Do you, like, according do you know to his who- own. I know it's plays? Toby Ziegler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is, and yes, he's going like, it's evil Toby. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, Incredible. essentially. Incredible. Mm-hmm. But, like, but he's like, it's, but but he is basically doing, like, we're going to redevelop the world. Um, yes, it's more, I mean, yeah, it's like, imagine if the Dwarven well realm was Vietnam after South Vietnam. Well, no, that's a bad analogy. Imagine it's it's imagine that the Dwarven realm is uh, what America imagined Afghanistan could have been in mm-hmm. the early days of the war. <laughs> right. And like, you know, they've got all these rare earth minerals and we're going to set up all this infrastructure and we're going to make a whole bunch of money. Them too. And it'll be good for the Afghans too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because well, they don't want war with us. Right, and there's going to be war with us if they yeah. don't set up these mining operations. Um, and so, yeah, you're going into these spaces and un- literally unwinding a lot of this that has destroyed them and the land. Um, the one that was most, and I don't want to spoil the moment, but uh, just to tease, the one that was most affecting to me so far was uh, the stuff in Ironwood. 
mm-hmm. with a character's grandmother, mm-hmm. like what she's doing and why she's doing it. Uh, it's in like what she, there's a moment where she gives a line of dialogue at the end of a boss battle. Um, it's a, it, it, it's always nice. And it's kind of, I just, it's hitting me just now that the boss battles in this, uh, I always feel bad when I'm doing them. Oh, uh, like the, the, the lizard one I just did. Yeah. Without explaining the, like, are they sad boss battles? It's more like, it's not portrayed as sad. I mean, it's, it, it is given all the bombast of you fighting some horrific enemy, but the context, which you know immediately is like this, this, this game is like broadly all the conflicts over and over are like you not. It's always like you can see both sides, but like shit's messy. And like to accomplish your goal, you do eventually have to pick a side and hopefully you're picking the right one. And a lot of there are times in this game you're revisiting adventures you had in the first game to realize well, we fucked up. We like in pursuit of our personal goals, we picked the side thinking we were helping people. I don't think we don't think we did it, y'all. Like think we think we picked picked poorly or picking it all was was the mistake. Like like there was no reason for Atreus and Kratos to come here and then put a finger on the scale. They may have thought they were doing that because that was the only way to accomplish their goal, but all they did was just leave something much messier behind and and over and over it's a game like putting combat and like these enormous spectacle fights in a context that's like ah, like i know why you're doing this all right big lizard i know what you're doing i know what i'm doing i know why i'm gonna rip your head off we're all gonna feel bad about well you won't because you'll be dead but and like be- we're all gonna feel bad about this at the end and it gives like and i don't want to overstate the case right but it's it it is it gives a contextual emotional heft to things that in the past, in this series in particular, which from the gun, like God of War open, uh, God of War one opens with like you having this big spectacle Hydra battle on a ship. Like it fucking whips. And they have kept that thematically as a, t- a touchstone of what this franchise is. But I think what they've done a better job in these past two games. And this one in particular is, is thinking about how can we make this feel like a little emotionally complicated for the actors involved and not just that you feel bad because you're killing a thing that's, you know, uh, like a a part of nature, but that how they fit into the infrastructure and the political structure of this world. It's like, ah, shit, well, you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like this sucks shit for everybody. Yeah, the lizard one, uh, there's going to be horrifying consequences for that. Like, <laughs> I think so. As soon I as agree. we started that I battle, agree. I was like, are we, this is a, this is a bad idea. We should not yeah. be doing this at all. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. Um, one thing I, I did notice, uh, and I'm glad somebody was thinking of us pet owners. Uh, Matt, Matty Myers over at Polygon uh, posted a story about like, Hey, your dog your dog dies really early in this game, but that actually is the table stakes for like depressing animal death and harm you're you're going to come across. And like it also just made it sound like this game might be I was like, is it possible for a game for maybe to be too much of a bummer? Uh that that a lot of this game is going to be like touring scenes of like despair or like we 
oh we we just can't we just can't salvage this like we just have to like witness this horror and move on i think that that is the question one of the biggest questions for me right now when i and when i say are they going to stick the landing where are we going with this and what are we building to and i don't know yet because i haven't finished i probably won't finish for a while um but I will say the way that's handling things right now, it doesn't, it feels like we're having a good and interesting conversation. It does not feel like uh, misery porn, like Last of Us 2, which I know I'm one of the only Last of Us 2 defenders. I enjoy me some misery porn. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Believe, like, I have, I've said on this podcast before when my, my wife does not like to watch sad movies unless it's like, is this going to win Best Picture? Okay, I'll watch it. So I have a list of sad movies that I watch when she's out of town because. I, I I really enjoy I, I I'm like you like I, I I don't have a problem with that I can watch something that is meant to be just let's just let's just drag me through the mud emotionally and physically last of but, us two only lost me when a like a bunch of guys who run an airsoft group in the last act uh, <laughs> take over a resort and start crucifying people there and I was like this is getting a little much. We maybe hit these notes too too many times. If they just left out the airsoft team, I think the we might have Southern California airsoft team. Uh, oh man, top golf good. does Golgotha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this this never feels. And some of it is that there is the aesthetic is so joyous and beautiful, mm-hmm. and the game feels so good to play. Um, and there are characters that are hopeful and think things can change. It's not just one, it's multiple. Um, And the character motivations feel complicated and thought through and nuanced that it never feels like you're having these conversations amongst the the characters and in your head about what all this means and the price of power and Odin's policies and if he couldn't be stood up against, but it never falls into despair or nihilism somehow. Yeah, well, it's it's a a game about uh, broadly, uh, you know, these games have always been about like prophecy, right? And like this game, more than any others, is when is prophecy is prophecy inevitability? What does it? If prophecy is where you end up, no matter what, what is it? What do you do along the way? Um, and uh, does that impact what happens when you reach that point? And I think that's you know, like Kratos over and over. You know, this this game is about like, you know, the unfolding of Ragnarok, which is, you know, essentially the equivalent of war, uh, uh, you know, in this in this world. And he keeps saying, like, I don't want like I don't want war. I don't want that. Like, what can we do? But like everyone else, like, well, I don't know, man, the Giants wrote some prophecies. The Giants are pretty smart. Uh, everything else that, you know, they saw before that it's just going to come to pass. You just sort of have to accept it. But there are multiple characters that do not want to accept that prophecy is destiny. Um, and this game spends a lot of time sort of unpacking that. And even if it ends up where prophecy is destiny, I think what it's trying to explore along the way is, well, that doesn't mean you have to take the most efficient, a brutal nihilistic path there. Um, which frankly, I, you know, it, it is part of the, the problem I think many of us had with the last of us part two, which is like, no, but like, what if we did like, what if we took just like the brutal, most nihilistic path <laughs> to, to that point? And, you know, a uh, God of war, like at least opens the door with, with multiple characters, you know, as they brutally murder things along <laughs> the way, um, like questioning how, how they've arrived there, like, you know, and how they, how they might be able to do things slightly differently. I, I mean, there is definitely a tension between the on-screen violence and 
what the characters are saying. It doesn't feel as far apart as, you know, Uncharted or something like that. Um, at least is acknowledging that it's violence is part of what's happening as opposed to the cutscenes and the in-game action being diametrically opposed. Like the violence is, is necessary um, to achieve their means. I think it's more, uh, you know, what kind of, kind of good can we do along the way as our blade slowly slices open the, yeah. I think the thing that doesn't work for me sometimes, uh, Galt is, uh, wow. Well, when we do defeat these enemies um, that we feel sad about, we do need a cutscene in which we do it in the most brutal fashion possible. <laughs> oh yeah, is it more? Am I just misremembering the first one, or is there more decapitation and arm rending and brutality in the, fir- in the in the last one? In this one, more so than the last one. Did they up the violence a little bit here, or am I just misremembering? I I, I don't know. Like it all kind of mashes together, That's fair. right? Because the game is is always trying to one up itself um, in, in that regard. I mean, the one. I mentioned on the previous podcast, but like there's there's an early boss fight with Atreus and Kratos where they're fighting kind of a, a lizard creature. And like, you know, the, the way these boss battles work is you whittle down their health and then you hit R3 and then you get the cool cutscene to finish them off. And, you know, like Kratos is like holding their head so that Atreus can come over and take a knife and like sl- like slit through their body. And it's like, do we like do we do we have to? Is this like, how we do... be better? Yeah. and And that feels like. The, the, that it's those moments most acutely where I feel like the legacy of this franchise is holding back like the most away for what it's trying to do on screen and, and almost everywhere else. Uh, like, do, do we need to do like, do we need to do it or do it this way? Um, and I don't know that it necessarily needs to all the time. Cause I think it ends up taking away a bit of what it's trying to grapple with in the, the, the main narrative itself. And it's constantly trying to kind of hedge against that. I think a, a little bit, um, it's like the arc in gameplay of your companion character in Alfheim, like mm-hmm. where they start when you, when you're getting into combat encounters and where they end up. It's really good. Is really I, good. It's like one of those interesting sort of like companion characters I've, I've had in, in, in these games in, in a while. Cause they actually go through an arc that is yeah in, interesting and understandable and in gameplay too. Like it's all happening right. like in your combat encounters. It's like super, it's, you don't see that in these kinds of games very often. That was super fun and good. Um, as the last thing before we move on is we, we, we tend to do this. We did this when we talked about last of us as well, when uh, the three of us were discussing that game, but are you also enjoying playing it? <laughs> I am. I am. I know I kind yeah, of, too. Uh, I think when we talked about The Last of Us, the remaster, I was like, eh, I'm not really here to experience the gameplay. But this, yeah. I'm like, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, they have just, it's funny because you start it and you're like, okay, well, I'm just playing the first one again. Uh, same, same abilities. I can see all the different trees and everything that's going to happen. And they keep doling out like new systems at a really good pace that keep you engaged I wish it was a little bit faster. It's yes. like, how many times do I have to look at the heavy runic slot and not have anything? 20 hours in, in still don't have anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there, you know, I, I wish, I do wish there was a third weapon, right? Like, I don't know if that happens later in the game or not. Yeah. Um, but like, I've used this axe and the axe is a little different. I've used these, the blades of chaos. They're a little bit different. And broadly speaking, they find tweaks to that formula through your companion characters and what they do with those companion characters throughout the game. And I do wish there was a little more room for, I just, I, I wish there was a third weapon that like was like just fundamentally different than what I'm doing 
with these two. I've got a, I've got um, a feeling we're going to get a late game twist. I, I I agree that there has to be something along. Like it, it would be shocking to me, especially because they give you the axe and the blades of chaos right off the uh, right from the start, um, and then you're just working through a skill tree uh, from there. Um, yeah, I kind of I have. I kind of appreciated that, you know, so many of these games, and they even did it in, like, an old God of War. Uh, like, you've gone through, like, God of War 1 and 2, and I think it's the third one. You you have all of these weapons and, like, all this stuff you use to, all these skills, and you fall into the river that's in sticks that makes you forget everything, and you lose mm-hmm. all your equipment. And they break, like, one or two things here. Uh, but mostly you get to keep all the stuff you had in the first game. Yeah. And I kind of appreciated that. Yeah, it just kind of like it just hits the ground running. And but I think the the downside of that is, well, I, I would like some of those. I would like some systems and, and tweaks, tweaks to that, um, at least for, you know, Kratos, who we're broadly, you know, playing as, you know, for, for the vast majority of the of the game. Um, but I, the combat worked for me for the 40 hours I played the, the last one. If if there is no third weapon, the combat is also work. Like it will never not be fun to throw the axe. Um, I mostly have to force myself to use the blades of chaos. I know what they're good at. I know that they're great for crowd control, and it's fun to like whip it at them and like pull yourself forward like scorpion. But like the axe is just so much fun to use, and the ice is so much cooler to look at. Agreed. Um, so I kind of have to t- remind myself sometimes use the other. Yeah, the I've, other I've barely because the the skills level up themselves, and you can like add tweaks specifically to yeah. them like put a stun or add out more elemental damage i've done none of that for the blades of chaos it's been it's been all no. axe yeah all axe well, all the time and i could also i felt this way with the first game like the whole equipment leveling up system like just throw like it's i don't yeah agree <laughs> i i you really want me to sit in this game and worry about like what my luck level is um I just wish it was simplified. It yeah. is it is way too RPG'd in a way that I don't think is beneficial to the game. Like too often I'll like get to the end of an area and then the game clearly wants you before you move on. Like, hey, go uh, check out your armor and, you know, see what you want to tweak. Like you want to put on a different handle. And it's like, okay, so my vitality goes down by seven and then my runic goes up by 14. And then like in the description, it's like, and you have a, high chance to get a stun buff or whatever. I'm like, I don't care. I, I think um, that that stuff is there for the people that once the game is finished and they're going to go kill yeah. all the Valky- Valkyries or whatever the equivalent is. It's like I, mid-max. Where you will need, yes. And I, I guess what my thought is, I wish it was either much simpler or much more complex because for my experience and like someone who's going to like play through these once, I guess I guess where it ends up is like you can kind of ignore it, but I guess I, I wish it would all, either allowed like a much different style of Kratos, or I just didn't have to worry about it. And I guess yeah. you you broadly can just not worry about it. You can just put on the new armor, put in the upgrade points, and it's not going to wildly swing how your how your character plays. Yeah, um, agreed. It, it can be mostly aesthetic if that's what you. And at least this one, I will say, I think they added a transmog system. So you, I think they um, did. Yeah, they did, or they're going to. I saw something about that. Um, but I, that was an issue in the first game where sometimes the the best performing stuff was not necessarily your favorite, and so they've they fixed that uh, in this one. But yeah, uh, two thumbs up. I'm excited to play this for the next two weeks and probably finish it over Thanksgiving. And I'm I'm having a really good time with it. Same, big same. Awesome. Uh, We'll continue the show after the break. Galt, it's been great having you on, and uh, come back soon. 
Thank you so much for having me. Uh, bring me back when we talk about Dark Tide for three oh, yeah, hours after it's released, please. <laughs> that was just a single podcast dedicated to. But I think the Warhammer pods just have to be their own thing. Like, all right, fine. Separate like, Warhammer 40K just... series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we're back. Uh, so, Ren, you've been playing a couple games from Humble uh, lately. You want to talk us uh, talk us through what you've been up to? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there are a couple of so Humble games, uh, formerly, I mean, still probably best known for the Humble Bundle and like the Humble Store where you can do uh, like buy games in large bundles, donate to charity. They are the reason that my uh, Steam library is several hundred games long. Uh, because I was a big, I was big into humble bungle, bundles as a youth. Because I was like, I humble bungle, hung, humble bungle, humble bungle is a, a lot of the decisions <laughs> we've made during uh, during sales. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's a humble bungle um, where I go in and I go, oh, I could want one of these games. Maybe here's here's fifteen dollars, and then I have seventeen games, and I'm like, ah, fuck. Well, this is one of those many things that like gaming would have been so much different, like free to play. And then Steam plus like sales. Mm -hmm. It's like, geez, just your access to get games as long as you're patient is so much wider than than it was before. Right. And so Humble then went on to start doing a lot of publishing or not a lot uh, uh, um, and a significant amount of publishing uh, for indie games, uh, including um, one of my game of the year contenders for this year. uh, Signalis is published by um, Humble. And um, so I decided to take a ch- take a look at what else they've been publishing. And honestly, it's it's been W's so far. Um, also published this year were Ghost Song, which is uh, came out of I believe last actually pretty recent last Thursday. Like um, yeah, I was gonna say I I, I remember seeing it. Uh, and that's like a metroidvania yes it is a metroidvania yeah it looked pretty good it is it is gorgeous is is what i'll say it is a really really beautiful like hand-drawn um game and it relies on like the standard you have a little metroid arm like it is it is pulling from metroid to the degree that you have a blaster cannon on your arm and that is the only thing that arm does is act as a blaster cannon the fun thing about that game though is that it asks you to combine melee um and your blaster together. So basically when you fire your blaster, it overheats your uh, blaster cannon, which is what you also use to punch enemies. And so if you overheat your weapon, you're going to hit people with a superheated hunk of metal, which means you are doing significantly more damage. Um, And it is also just like a really engaging metroidvania um with everything oh wow they, they just have the straight up same as flippiness yeah, like uh-huh. like like okay yeah patrick i'm looking at a trailer for it right now like like when you jump and go you know flip around that is just hey we're signaling that's the same as sprint baby um, now the difference is i just saw a clip where like they swung a giant hammer and an alien exploded which is not necessarily what you're going to see samus getting up to. exactly and so like that's part of what makes the game engaging and interesting is that there are a ton of different options for what your blaster can do uh and what like secondary equipment you you bring around so for example uh one of the things that i found i found two different blasters so far one of them is like a long range um single shot rifle um type thing uh, solid damage. Um, if you uh, like feather the trigger, trigger it goes pretty fast. Um, 
And the other is a like flame shot uh, that sets enemies on fire. And so you're basically managing when you're fighting in combat, you're managing a couple of resources, um, how hot your blaster is, uh, how much energy you have for your secondary fire and um, your stamina. Uh, because this game has a has a dash, uh, a, a a dodge with uh, invincibility frames, uh, which also pulls in the same stamina resource as your sprint and as your melee attack. And so combat is all about balancing those three things um, off of one another and constantly switching how you are approaching fighting a given enemy. Um, it's really satisfying when it's working well. I think there are times where mm. it can be a bit floaty in a way that I don't love, but I'm loving the the world and like art so much yeah, that I, I kind of this game, don't. This game's vibes look care. incredible. Like there the, a mix of like sci-fi trappings over what look like dark fairy tale like dark decaying fairy tale yes. aesthetics. That is that is 100% what it feels like. It feels like you took a if if in a world where it feels like if you took a science fiction like universe, right? And then there was just one planet where magic worked. What if there was one planet in the entire in the entire universe where magic just fucking worked and you just so happened to crash land on that particular planet? Um that is that is the vibes here. Um in in a way that I really really love. Like one of the first like most evocative images the game has is and second like grabbing a link to this. Um uh, you walk into a room and you just see a woman suspended from the ceiling, pierced by roots. Um, and the lighting is gorgeous. The art is is fantastic. And like, there are arresting images like this everywhere. Um, and like, the narrative it's setting up so far is really light, but you basically wake up in what is called the dead suit, which is the name of your suit, and are told like, <laughs> this has been, yeah, I know, right? Um, this has been dormant for like a couple of hundred years. We don't know why. Like the game is like, I don't know why I'm waking up. The dead suit is like, I don't know why the fuck I'm waking up, but I am awake. Let's move. Um, and you start exploring this world and the interplay between all the combat systems is really engaging. The exploration so far is, is fun. I'm having a couple of issues with just like getting a, getting a feel for how to like do the combat competently as opposed to kind of just like smashing my face against an enemy and hoping that my, uh, uh, health restart my, I can just like face tank them. Right. Um, but I'm, but I'm really, really liking what I've played so far. I'm excited to, to dig into more of it. Um, that is, that is ghost song. The, mm-hmm. No, because this other one was probably the one that, unsurprisingly, you yeah. uh, caught my interest a little more. This so I'm, exactly I'm eager good. to hear you uh, tell us a bit about this one. So Iron Oath is a the Iron Oath is a tactics game, uh, also uh, published by Humble. That is, it's really created by, uh, designed by uh, uh, someone who's a, a fan of Waypoint and Giant Bomb. I've, oh, really? I've talked with this creator a handful of times over the years. Did a Kickstarter, and the game finally came out. Um, earlier this year. Nice. Uh, it's in it's in early access currently. It's about like, I think halfway through the early access timeline. So I just thought I'd check in and, and see what's going on. It's really cool. Uh, I think that it is a boy, Rob, uh, do you want a tactics game that's going to get your ass a little bit? Because I've played, Always. I've played 
a dungeon uh, and one uh, encounter, and I've wiped every time. I have wiped without fail. And I consider myself pretty good at tactics games, uh, and I have been absolutely eating shit. Um, Not that far into the game. Not that No, no. Out the gate. Yeah. Um, the basic idea is that you are controlling a party of four characters, each of which come from a different class, or you can actually have two of the same class there, um, on a hex-based um, map of tiles um, with some light cover mechanics. Uh, is like a dark fantasy setting. Uh, and so the cover mechanics are only really uh, ap- applicable to ranged characters. Um, but what the game does really well is it has its classes feel really good and distinct from one another in a way that is like more interesting than I would say most, at least stylistically more interesting than most tactics games, right? Most tactics games, you start off with just like guy with sword, guy with bow, right? Wi- wizard. Duh. This is basically where um, I start playing Expeditions Rome. And, like, production values are through the roof on that. Mm-hmm. Like, cool story, lots right. of good, like, vibes. But it opens with, like, exactly those archetypes. And I'm just like, I don't know that I can hang the, you know, two, three hours of, like, these basic archetypes to right. to get into when it's going to open up. Right. I don't give a fuck about the swordsman. I don't care. I don't. I don't need this. I don't need this in my life. Unless the swordsman is sick as fuck. Give me a swords class that is, that is, give me complexity out the gate. Enter Iron, the Iron Oath, which is like, okay, class one. Let's welcome, welcome to your first tutorial battle. Here are your classes. This is the Pyrolancer. The Pyrolancer is a melee, uh, a mixed melee magic class whose whole thing is that they are a spear wielding pyromancer who can uh, buff allies, create traps on the ground. Um, or set enemies on fire in a line, and every enemy on fire um, near the Pyrolancer gives the Pyrolancer an additional 5% bonus damage. Um, So actually, it's not just enemies. like watching these people burn. Exactly. Uh, It's enemies and allies. So for every person Uh on fire near you, yeah, Interesting possibilities. You gain 5% damage. And so that can rack up real quick. Um... And so, like, that's the Pyrolancer, for example. That is a starting class. Uh, another one is, like, a Storm Mage, uh, who is pretty simple. They're just, like, a ranged uh, DPS class um, who has an ability that charges over the course of five turns because the game separates turns and rounds. A round is every every character gets to take a turn. That is a round, right? Um, and so... It's like, okay, cool. Do I have enough time to set this wizard up such that they are going to be safe for five actions? Can I can I put them in a position where for five actions, no one's going to fuck with them. Uh, they, they can charge up the spell and just do like a big 250 damage, like blast that insta-kills an enemy, right? And so it has the like time management aspects of something like a Final Fantasy Tactics, where you're like, okay, I have to charge up this spell or ability properly, so let me channel it and hope that I can get this off in time. Um, and then uh, there's just like a basic healer, 
Uh, now they just added an ice mage. The ice mage is all about moving enemies, um, setting like creating defensive objects and moving enemies around. Um, so like so the ice mage can like summon a um, waist high cover that makes you take fifty percent less damage from ranged attacks. Uh, but also, if you summon it underneath an enemy, you can choose a direction to push them in. So, for example, you could slam an enemy into another enemy and then push them off to the side or, like, shove an enemy down a pit and stun them, yeah. taking away their turn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And these are, again, the starting classes. Um, quick, mm-hmm. quick question. Uh, how much is going on in this overworld map that I'm... I'm this is an overworld map. Yes. It looks it like here's a might and magic. Very much an overworld map wherein you are, you're running a mercenary company. My mercenary company is currently called Godspeed Glory. Um, uh, And so basically you're running this mercenary company and you have relations with, uh, or like relationships with the towns and factions of the world. And it's like, okay, cool. Are we chill with the Vanguard in Alderaan? Great. They will give us more jobs. Um, are we really not chill with like X group over here? Um, and so, you know, managing these relationships is a factor. And like, so is traveling across like wide distances, um, having provisions and all and all of this. Yeah. It's also worth noting that these characters do have a trait system. Um much like, you know, a lot of games right now have that proc gen trait system where it's like, okay, this character is brave. This character is treacherous. Um, some of them impact combat, others affect dialogue because this game does have like um, quest specific dialogue that your um, companions and, and the characters you've hired for each mission will chime in on um, from time to time and, and give them options to say things um, in uh, particular sequences so if you have a brave character you as the company manager can be like get get in there uh, and they'll be like i will i'm brave it's me brave eric uh, and then he gets in there and you say you say i'm so thankful thank you um both games are really gorgeous it's worth it's worth yeah. saying that like the style of pixel art that um uh the iron oath is aiming for is really really excellent uh, it kind of rejects the uh, super deformed proportions of a lot of pixel art games. Right. Um, and instead leans into um, like very high fidelity. It, it, Rob, Rob, do you know what this art style reminds me of, Rob? What? Duelist. You know when I when I saw screenshots, I I did think like there's a there was a duelist quality to it. Yeah, Rob, Rob, it's kind of it's kind of giving it's kind of giving duelist. Something tied us over to when to when duelist returns to us fully. Let me just search some duelist two, duelist two backst, duelist two on Steam. Rob, Rob, we can we can request access to the playtest. Is it, bad? is it is it on? Go to Steam Duelist. Oh yeah, it is. Duelist 2. I'll, well, just... I'll beg for access. Uh <laughs> these games look awesome. 
Yeah, they're both, they're both, I think that uh, the Iron Oath is much rougher around the edges. I think it is, it is an early access game. It is halfway, it is, it is at point, point 0.5 right now. I would hold off on it. Uh, having played it, I can be like, okay, cool. I want to see what this game looks like when every single class is in it. All of the enemies are there and the campaign is like fully fleshed out. Um, I'm going to play it. I'm going to put more time into it now to see like if my opinions form, form up on it. But like I would say that it is worth waiting an extra couple of months. Um, see if like maybe uh, balance gets polished and a bunch of other things. I think it is. I think it was worth. Worth waiting uh, on this one. But hey, that's two really exciting looking games. Uh, really, really dig that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, Patrick, you highlight a couple news stories uh, today, and there, there's one that I certainly wanted to hit. Uh, but actually, let's start with probably the just to close the loop a little bit on you know this is probably not the full story. I was going to say the I don't know, close the loop. Yeah, is the f- f- framing I had to use as much as. But let's just check in on continues. it is more what I mean. Yeah. Like return to it. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the 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 Zalm terminations. Uh, can you can you sort of uh, tell us a little bit about what's come out uh, recently about that? Yeah. Um... Uh, Ren, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the long and sh- the short version of what happened before, which is just a TLDR, is like some of the chief creatives on Disco Elysium left Zaum, and like folded their uh, creative collective and accused the company that they are involved with for making the sequel to prioritize money over the game that they wanted to make. Um, and since then, uh, 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 Games Industry Biz has an article. Um, uh, there was, I guess, a report in an Estonian a newspaper um, that uh, Zaum has since confirmed sort of like the, or at least confirmed is, you know, be careful how we use our words, uh, but like has Zaum has uh, corroborated the, some of the accusations that uh, appeared in that article. And we're given a statement from, uh, 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 from Zaum to games history biz that, um, I'll just read as follows. Uh, an exclusive statement to uh, Zaum detailed some of the reasons behind recent dismissals, but did not name any specific individuals. Uh, the studio said the dismissed employees had limited to no engagement in their responsibilities and work, created a toxic work environment, demonstrated misconduct towards other employees, including verbal abuse and gender discrimination, and attempted to illegally sell Zaum's intellectual property. Uh, more details are specified uh, by the studio in the, in the full statement below. This article by JBiz uh, does... Um, uh, you know, it makes attempts to corroborate some of the uh, allegations made by uh, those left behind by Zaum management. Um, quote, one source that spoke to uh, Games Industry Biz who asked to remain anonymous described the situation as, quote, not black and white uh, and said that long-term staff were reluctant to speak out about Kurvitz's behavior, Kurvitz being one of the chief creatives that left um, or were fired. Um, because they respected him and felt like they owed him for their positions. One source claimed staff hired later on did not have a clear picture of the situation and felt uncomfortable speaking out on behalf of others. Um, and so 
messy, right? Um, so on one hand, when we first talked about the story, it was, hey, a bunch, you know, th- these folks have come out and issued a statement uh, that is very easy to imagine that the business people came into a indie game that sold a lot and was going to have a, uh, you know, a, a, a more a broader, more expensive sequel. Easy to see how that gets messy. Um, then, but it did always feel like there was a shoe to drop on that. Um, in this case, it might be multiple shoes. Uh, and there's this, and then the most recent update um, is uh, Robert Kurvitz, uh, the former game director, and uh, Alexander Rostov, the art director on Disco Elysium, uh, releasing uh, a statement on Medium. Um, a quote from here. Uh, uh, well, the TLDR of this is like essentially they're like it's really. We are Robert Kurvitz and Alexander Rost of the game director and art director of Disco Elysium. Our stake in the game exists in the form of minority share, minority shareholdings in an Estonian company, uh, Zone Studio, uh, which owns everything related to the game. The majority of this company's shares were initially held by uh, Margus Linnemey, an Estonian businessman and investor who provided the initial capital. Uh, in 2021, they were brought on. Uh, they were bought out by another minority shareholder, uh, shareholder, different Estonian company. Da da da. There's a lot of. Essentially, they are. Uh, they are claiming there are both uh, civil claims and criminal charges on the table in Estonia and the United Kingdom. Uh, they claim like there's a lot of messy, emotional, personal, business, financial accusations that are flying from basically every direction. This does sound like the kind of thing that could end in a lawsuit. Uh, although that hasn't, uh, happened, uh, quite yet. Um, but that, uh, that catches up to where we are. Um, and I think at the very least, uh, suggests quite like the, the Bayonetta voice actor situation that, um, you know, emotional pleas that come from creatives are very easy to buy into because those narratives are frequently correct. Go look at what just happened this week with, uh, oh, what's his, what's his name? The, the doom composer. Composer. Jesus. Yes. Um, um, you want to tell people what we're alluding to there? What the Doom thing? Yeah. Oh, geez. Like where to begin on that? Um, uh, let me pull up this. Uh... Oh yeah, Mick Gordon, who is the composer uh, on Doom and Doom Eternal, and, and you know, not just a video game composer, just an incredible composer, did amazing work for Doom and Doom Eternal. There was. A bunch of back and like the, you know, I'm going to get some of the facts on here, like uh, mixed up. But uh, my understanding was that essentially when the OST was being prepared, like the full soundtrack for Doom Eternal, um, it was released in a bad state. There were a lot of complaints about it. um, And there was a lot of acrimonious back and forth between Mick Gordon, the composer, and specifically um, Marty Stratton. Yeah, uh, you know, in studio director Marty uh, Stratton. that resulted in a lot of bad blood um, accusations of each side not acting in, in good faith. Um, and uh, Stratton uh, writing a, a Reddit post that uh, essentially painted Mick Gordon as a real villain, um, which was a side that got kind of got adopted by the community. And then almost two years later, Mick Gordon has released a lengthy novel, like or a more novella sized response. On- it's like a legal brief. It, well, it definitely reads – it is. It has the, the language of uh, a writer speaking from their perspective, but the tone of a lot of lawyers have read through this to make sure that nothing is being said that will put Gordon in any sort of uh, legal jeopardy or any jeopardy that they aren't aware of 
that they're about to, to proceed in that may be kicked off by publishing this. And essentially, again, TLDR of a very complex situation, pretty credibly accuses uh, Marty Stratton with a number of receipts of of lying, of of not acting in good faith with Mick Gordon, um, and is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, two years later, we have a bunch of new facts that don't necessarily draw us to a single conclusion, but makes the conclusions that were drawn two years ago a lot more complicated. And I think that's, you know, that's part of what's playing out here as well with, with Disco Elysium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that the... The bummer about these situations is that, like, a company can very easily take power uh, over uh, chief creatives, but also chief creatives frequently take power over their employees uh, in in the worst possible ways, regardless of the politics of the text they're working on. Um, And it is um, a huge bummer. Uh, I hate it. I hate it when everyone in the room uh, sucks. That is that is kind of the. The worst case scenario is where it's L's kind of all around. Right. Like even like putting aside, you know, you know, what what is the quote truth or facts of the matter? If you sort of step back from both of these circumstances, it's like, I wish Mick Gordon, Mick Gordon, who established sort of didn't just work on Doom, also worked on Wolfenstein, like established these like sort of sonic identity of a lot of Bethesda projects uh, in a way that rules. I really, really like Mick Gordon's work and part of the one of the reasons I was upset that I didn't care for Doom Eternal was that well I'm not going to be able to experience that soundtrack in real time with the game uh is it like I want Mick Gordon to keep to work on Doom 3 or whatever they were you know what I mean like I want I wanted the Disco Elysium folks to make the sequel they wanted to make and creative endeavors are never that simple like this is this is more common than you think it's not always just as publicly messy as these situations um but uh I think bummer is the is the appropriate word Ren yeah yeah, it's um, yeah, unsurprising. Like it's a it's contested territory, uh, and it's I, I am I am certain it is. It, it sounds it sounds like an enormously complicated transition of power ownership. Just eras within the studio is also unfolding. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably like was was gasoline on all of this as well. well and also, what do you do when uh, you know th- there's a reason that um. These different ways of structuring companies tend to happen on a small scale. They are yeah. there aren't great examples of scaling them up. Not that it can't happen, but we saw this with uh, the Dead Cells developer, um, which was oh, I forget which kind of which structure they were. They were a co-op. They were a co-op, yeah. right? And then Dead Cells becomes a phenomenon, like becomes so big and so successful that they have a spin-off studio dedicated to ongoing support of dead cells while the folks that were part of the create many folks that worked on the the, the creative uh, brain trust that made that game wanted to do something else and that studio stayed where they are remained a co-op they spun up a different studio that was not a co-op to work on dead cells um and you know that's not, I'm not saying that has to happen but it is not surprising that you see like existing structures glom on to a thing as it gets bigger um and it goes along right? yeah, i was just saying like that is i think the dead cells in- example is an interesting one because you see basically the original studio remains a co-op uh and that yeah. and that spin-off studio being led by one of the people who was not interested in that uh and just yeah. like it, i believe if i remember correct it was either the marketing 
uh, the head of marketing at the co-op or the uh, uh, like the biz dev guy. Yeah, I wrote I wrote a big yeah, I profile this. on this a couple of years ago. The if you Google search it, the the ambitious future of dead cells is ditching co ops for capitalism. It's a good headline. Um, <laughs> uh, and and I think one of the reasons it caught my eye when I got the press release is that there the the spinoff studio the non co op is called Evil Empire. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> it's it's a good joke. Like I I, I got a hand. I gotta hand it to him. That's a good joke. That's a good joke to spin off from a co-op and then call yourself the evil empire. It's it's very funny. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this was, yeah, this, I believe you're right. This was a, uh, uh, you know, an ex-marketing person. Like one of the quotes I have in here is, uh, quote, the co-op model comes with a bunch of constraints. It's not at all rainbows and fists in the air. There's a stack of work, emotional costs, and a whole lot more that's been below the surface. It's definitely not for the faint-hearted or someone looking for a cruisy nine to five. When you have to defend and justify your every idea to each and every team member, or every member of the team, you have to be very... Uh, motivated, um, which I think there, I think there are reasonable points in in there, but I think the the question just becomes, you know, what do, what do you lose along the way? Um, I, you know, I, I think there are worlds where these existing business structures can, you know, benefit folks, but I we have lots of evidence that they don't. Um, and I, I think for Motion Twin, that's the developer that was on Dead Cells. Part of their point was they didn't want to scale. Right. They're like, we have a team that works like. A lot of these, you know, co-ops, you know, even individual ones are structured differently. But the ones I've profiled over the years, it's like, well, everyone talks about every decision. And it's like not hard to imagine that being like, how the fuck do you do that with 30, 40, 50, 100 people? Pretty soon you have co-ops within co-ops, which is just like dividing labor in the way that you normally do it like a traditional business. And not that it it couldn't be done uh, or or find ways to find in the middle. But um, I don't I sort of don't blame either side for you know i hope the folks at evil empire like they're happy and well paid but i also don't blame motion twin for saying like yeah dead cells was a success that's great let's cash it in but i don't like i don't want to become a 40 person team like reason dead cells worked was because it was the small team so hey uh on the topic of being absorbed by evil empires though all right, we did. We 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 you know we had our vegetables. Now let Rob talk about Project Cars. <laughs> What's to talk about? It's dead. It's done. Uh, so, yeah. Um, EA, yeah, EA is the short. Uh, EA is dropping Project Cars. They acquired uh, Slightly Mad Studios uh, some years back, and according to this GI Biz article. Um, the announcement was made internally. It's unclear at this stage to what extent staff could be affected. EA said the employees working on Project Cars will move to do, quote, suitable roles, quote, wherever uh, they can. Um, in a statement from EA, they said, today we announced internally an update to our racing portfolio. Following an evaluation of the next Project Cars title and its longer-term growth potential, we have made the decision to stop for the development and investment for the franchise. Um, what was the state? Like, EA did their own investigation. Rob... What was the st- what was the state of Project Cars prior to not good since EA took it over? Like that's okay. that's fundamentally what we're. So, I mean, this is kind of a um. This is kind of what was always worrying about when Codemaster Codemasters acquired slightly mad, and then and then EA, EA acquires quickly Codemasters. acquired Codemasters, which means yeah. that you went from being in a situation where. EA was making a bunch of racing games. Codemasters was also making a bunch of racing games. Slightly Mad was also out there making their own racing games. And then suddenly, imagine all that just collapsing into one entity. 
EA now is deploying all these racing game development resources and deciding how they're going to be allocated. And unsurprisingly, they reached the conclusion that none of this other stuff is of interest. So Project Cars, uh, for people who don't sort of remember the the origins of this, so Slightly Mad made a couple really well-regarded, like, sim-light racing games for EA, uh, Need for Speed Shift, and then I think the next one was called Shift 2 Unleashed because it didn't really fit with, with Need for Speed. Uh, and they were very, very cool games. Uh, it had their had a very different vibe from uh, anything in the more more serious uh, sim space, but also were, were very distinct from, from Need for Speed. And were well-regarded. Uh, the series didn't kind of go anywhere. Uh, Need for Speed went in a very different direction from that. So Slightly Mad goes, goes away. And they developed... Uh, they crowdfunded uh, Project Cars. And Project Cars, in a word, ruled. Uh, Project Cars was a great game, had a great aesthetic, uh, felt tremendous to race. Uh, I think Austin was a huge fan as well. You can look up Austin's reviews of, of those games. Uh, re- really cool games. And I, I don't think they... In in some ways, like in terms of presentation and vibe, it felt like you almost had a rival to things like Forza and Gran Turismo. But the thing they could never do, of course, was the scale of those games. But Project Cars 1 and 2 were very, very good, uh, seemed fairly successful. Then they get acquired by Codemasters, and in no time, they're part of EA. Project Cars 3 comes out, and I... It was such a quick turnaround. I have to assume that this decision was made basically internally at Slightly Mad without too much input from Codemasters or EA because I just can't imagine the turnaround having been that fast. But Project Cars 3 came out and it felt like a much more traditional arcade racer uh, with tons of progression mechanics. felt a lot like Need for Speed Shift, which having said all those kind of things about Shift, you'd you'd think would, would be a good thing. But it just didn't have the only way I can put Need for Speed Shift is like it was an angry racing game. It was kind of a violent one. Uh, it was it was racing game John Wick, I suppose, is the way I put it. Just because I got, got that in my head because that trailer came out today. But that is kind of the vibe of uh, the the Shift series. Project Cars Three didn't feel like Project Cars. Neither did it feel very much like what was cool about Shift. I felt it was kind of anonymous and uninteresting. The progression mechanics slowed it way down project cars left gave you a pretty big sandbox to play with uh project cars 3 was like you have to earn all your fun with this not terribly fun game so project cars Mm. 3 was not very good and if you said that's the trajectory of the series how do we think it will do in the marketplace yeah I, i can see how you get to not very well i don't think project cars if they'd sort of stuck to their guns if they made a project cars 4 that was more like the first two games i don't think that game is a failure I think it is not going to bring the return on investment that a company like EA wants to see from development resources when they contemplate these decisions. And this is often the right. concern when you see acquisitions like this. A company like Slightly Mad could operate at a certain scale and make games that sort of hit on the scale. EA does not operate at that scale, does not care about successes at that scale. And so given the choice between letting that studio kind of operate internally and focusing on what it wants to do versus say taking that studio and making it a support studio for 
a Need for Speed game or whatever, or an upcoming F1 game, that I, I see how you get to that position. By the way, it seems like things aren't awesome, aren't awesome at Codemasters either, because I think the word is also that the Dirt series is effectively kaput and and, and sort of has been for a while, uh, following sort of a, a long decline as the series has, has thoroughly turned its back on rally racing and like the Colin McRae uh, series origins of that of that series. Dirt uh, Dirt Rally is where they do the rally racing. Dirt Five was, by all accounts, kind of. Uh, neither fish nor fowl, not a, not a very well regarded series, but that also seems like it's kind of uh, cashed in. And so right now it appears that, you know, what we've got left from all this, uh, from those portfolios is an uncertain future for grid, which had that very cool FMV fake drive to survive game that came out mm-hmm. earlier this year. The F1 series, which is fine, but I don't think they have very interesting ideas for what to do with it. I think the stuff they added for F one twenty two was not was was pretty weak sauce. I think the stuff where you know the 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 selling point that we have uh, supercars and exotics in the game was miserable because they felt horrible to drive uh, in that game. Dirt Rally, I guess, will will continue going on, and I think they now have an exclusive license for uh the the rally championship but that's a that's not a terribly exciting lineup compared to what would have been offered a few years ago if all these were like three separate entities you know you'd say like wow you know if i don't like this year's installment of of x you know maybe the next project cars will be cool or you know hey like dirt rally three sounds like it'll be neat you know that this is kind of what we talk about we talk about like studio consolidation all, what was the explanation when they got acquired by Codemasters? Was it, it sucks to run an independent studio? We would love to just offload a bunch of that to a business that knows how to publish so we can just focus on making the games, which is, which is often how these are. For, was it was, you know, I was, I'm just curious how the community took that, what it felt like post-Codemasters versus the wake of, of EA. So it's been a while since I've... Uh... Like I haven't I haven't looked looked at this in a while. At the time, I remember it. If memory serves, there might have even been some connections between Slightly Mad and Codemasters that made it less of a leap that they would they mm-hmm. would have a relationship. It wasn't. We're like, gonna go work with our buddies. Yeah, like I think they're both British racing studio uh, houses. I, I'm not entirely sure that like that there wasn't already a little bit of of crossover between them and Codemasters' reputation was not bad. Like, I think there's people, you know, they're a big company that churned out racing games for a number of years. They have their detractors. You kind of, you know what you get from a Codemasters well, game. Things like Project Cars exist as a, like, as a result, yeah. of, probably, to some degree, of, like, these these publishers that are known for making this aren't making what this audience wants, and then you get a Project Cars. Right. So I, I think that, you know, th- there's apprehension because it was it was hard to see the hope would be that Codemasters didn't have anything like Project Cars in its portfolio, so maybe they they would want that. That's not how that played out, really. Uh, but the other thing is that I don't think anyone saw that the EA acquisition would follow so closely on the heels. And the mm-hmm. EA model is very clear what that is right now. It is licensed sports games, and that is what you know they have remade the F1 series into looking and, and feeling like an EA sports game, uh, which was already a direction that Codemasters were, was taking it. 
And then it is live service arcade racers, uh, which is a direction that e- that arguably they have been exploring since Burnout Paradise uh, and have just refined it again and again and again. It appears to be the future of Need for Speed, which uh, my guess is this is this is you know the real the real point of all this for, for them is probably to get these large experienced staffs to be working on games that are in line with EA's broader priorities for, for what they want. But that's that, but that sucks. If you like other types of games, you just like a little bit of diversity in the space. Right. And, and a bummer note that earlier this year, uh, it was, it was noted here in the, in the piece that, uh, Project Cars and Project Cars 2 were both going to just be straight up delisted <laughs> because these games rely on licenses. Right. And when those expire, then, you know, you can't you can't keep selling that. You can you can keep what you own, but that those games now just sort of poof. Which like, is that they're the, gone. And the one and the one that's last it left is the game that nobody liked. And that's and that's a total like that's a total bullshit thing too. Like I, I hate that the whole like Need a license to visually represent a thing that exists in the world. Uh, it is it is such a it really does like there's no reason for a racing game to have to go poof like five ten years after the fact. And a lot of old ones don't right. because nobody did licenses license deals like this now. But now constantly it's like well we have to delist this game because the licenses for these sports cars that nobody cares about anymore. Uh, you know, it, well, we're, we're losing the licenses on that and nobody's going to renegotiate for them. Uh, nobody cares, but the game's got to disappear. Uh, at which point I hope people have found other, maybe more ingenious, more legally gray ways of distributing. It's too bad that like it, it, it feeds into your most cynical notions of like selling, you know, updated games, new games when you can convenient, you can just point to, well, just the, you know, the contract says we can't sell it anymore. And even if you take it in good faith that like, look, it'd be expensive, a pain in the butt to, 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 to relicense these for a diminishing audience in which the vast majority of the audience is going to move to the sequel. Well, then I don't, I, I, you know, this is easy for me to say, but like find ways to plan for that, right? Like, are there ways where the game can change to accommodate that over time that is built into, Hey, when we're talking about laying the groundwork for this new sports game, Look, eventually the licenses are going to expire. Is there a way that this game can live on without those licenses? Um, if memory serves, there's just not an appetite for that. One of the games that did this kind of with a wink, like I believe R Factor was notorious for this, where R Factor One was eminently moddable. So right away it was like, was R Factor a game or was it more like a platform for <laughs> modding moving forward? And the answer was really more the latter, but two. If memory serves, they didn't so much license cars as they released like doppelgangers for the game that was like, we're not calling this a Porsche, right. but you kind of right. know what it is. <laughs> and it, it, you know, with some minor tweaks, it looks very much like a Porsche, et cetera. Well, much like what um, uh, like wrestling games yeah. would do, like without the license. It's like, well, do we have Hulk Hogan? No, but boy, this looks a lot like him. Yeah. Uh, and the, and I think the, the real, the real kicker of course, is that, you know, one of the most legendary racing games of all time, uh, is, uh, Grand Prix Legends, which is the papyrus, uh, historical F1 racing game. And you, you would think like there should be a lot more games like that, right? Like historical mm-hmm. racing, like, especially before 
you know, car design used to be really different, a lot, lot less homogenous, et cetera. So why isn't there more stuff like that? It's because like doing licensing deals around this stuff is is a nightmare. Like Codemasters offers historic F1 cars uh, in a ton of their racing games and a huge issue every year. Like, you know, sometimes the question comes up, well, why can't you just do like, you know, an old season? Why can't you do like classic F1 game? And the answer is because doing all the licenses for these various cars and, and display like, the liveries were often informed by advertisers who often don't exist anymore uh, too. Right. So like the companies that gave these cars their, their sort of colors and aesthetics have also kind of disappeared and it makes it impossible to make a game uh, where you're like representing these things as they were historically. And that's garbage, right? It's, 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 it's absurd that, it's absurd that you can't do that because like, it's all historical fact. Like it's in the record books. It's documented. Right. Like, right. It's like, there, there, it like, it is a bit like, uh, and I guess you know, there's some, there have been some uh, games that involve military hardware that also do weird licensing shit. But it is a bit like, uh, you know, ah, sorry, we can't, we have to delist this World War II game because we couldn't get, we couldn't renew the licensing on the on the Sherman tank. Uh, it's <laughs> it, it, it's kind of a weird thing, but this is this is where this has ended up. Uh, and so yeah, I, I think this is a bummer because this is kind of exactly the. Uh, like loss of vibrancy in a genre ecosystem that you kind of expect to see when a series of acquisitions like this unfolds. And here we are. It uh, doesn't mean like we're not going to get more good racing games. We probably will, but we're not going to get the types of games that slightly mad made before. And probably in the future, increasingly few games that, that feel like what Codemasters uh, often used to make as well. Uh, with that, shall we take it to the uh, question bucket? Please dive in. Let me let me take a dip. Splish. All right. Uh, man, lots of people. We're starting to really we're starting to really zero in on the whole coffee cake situation. Not going to get into it today, but a lot of folks now have suggested exciting, promising directions for the uh, for for the in, investigation. You know, what we need to do. I'm just going to put this up. We, we, we got away from this, you know, we're doing, we, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a bunch of different ways of, of doing content and streams and podcasts, but I did really enjoy the open a web browser and just see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. And that may be where like, cause what talking about this is not going to work, right? No. Like we need visual aids. And so I think we need to get on the books when you feel you have compiled enough evidence to go down the rabbit hole of let's just get on, let's just get on a call, open up, a web browser and try to solve this mystery yeah. and find some recipes that I can try and yes, or places or places that I can at least order from and be like, mail me this pastry. Please. <laughs> yes. yes, I agree. Uh, so Dan writes, I'm a massive scaredy cat when it comes to visual forms of horror, but I'd love the ideas behind horror stories, especially sci-fi cosmic love crafting ones. I normally stick to just reading horror books or more often the wiki pages and summaries of horror movies and games, but will occasionally gaslight myself into playing a game clearly marked as horror, uh, telling myself it won't be that bad for one reason or another. I did this with Soma, mistaking the safe mode they added for a no scares mode rather than just the no death mode it actually is. Turns out the least scary part of the game is getting chased by monsters. Uh, it turns out the, the least scary part of getting chased by monsters is the getting killed part. That said, mm-hmm. I'm so glad I pushed through it. 
pretty brilliant sci-fi story and will accept its much better experience through gameplay than an ad-riddled fandom summary page. I gave Signalis a go on Ren's recommendation. The excuses I told myself this time was that it was top-down and low-poly, so it can't be that scary, right? Lying to myself worked right up until the first save point made its mechanical scream and turns the screen red, nearly making me jump out of my seat. This is before encountering even the first enemy, so not a great start. Eight horrible hours later, I finished and absolutely loved it. I didn't stop dreading every new door I needed to open, but needed to see where the story went and what new, cool, spooky thing they do with the puzzles. Are there any games, scary or otherwise, that you've been compelled to stick with despite not enjoying the actual playing it part? Also, any recommendations for scary but not too scary games? Here's Dan. The Metro games. They got spooky spiders. That's like a game where you're just in hallways with like grotesque spiders jumping at you. I, like, the, no, no the way, spiders Ren. are rare. The spiders are only in Metro uh, Exodus. That is a game about just going through spooky hallways, though. Oh, well, you know, defines a lot of the spooky hallways shoot, are just filled yeah. with communists. <laughs> spooky, depending on who you talk to. Uh, I'm comforted by those games. hallways. Hmm. This is tough for me to say. I'm like a bad ask on like what what is the what is a spooky game that is not too too spooky. I'm like trying to spooky video games n- not too spooky. <laughs> uh, like visual novel. I'm trying to think about like a like a like a good horror visual novel. Mm. Um, because something like that, it would you know kind of fall into your bucket of. Like Oxenfree uh, is a game that's like it's spooky. Oxenfree, but... the, I, I would say the I would say the quarry. I would say actually any of the um, uh, the the uh, teens what, what, bickering and getting frightened genre. Right, and but all, I, I meant more from like the what is that the, the anthology series that they're doing that like dark I, pictures. I, I've forgotten the yeah dark pictures. Like those are those are games you can play with people are better with people. Um, and are not about direct control. Direct control is a huge part of why horror games are more intense than horror films because you're the one that's got to push forward and um th- uh and, and they're largely built around not really being scary as much as they're they're not quite horror comedy but i mean i guess the i guess the quarry is that that is like the most explicit like horror slash comedy because it's doing the the slasher thing um the other ones can be a little spookier but i feel like those games are like in many ways like big budget visual novels like without you know like you know they are in that same realm and may not spark the same response um out of you especially if you kind of play it like we did the quarry where you can you can have friends be different characters um and you're not always in control sometimes you're just you're just watching and those are good recommendations. Like, I think the stuff I would be, it's in that, in a similar sort of vein. But like, I, 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 I am not someone who can press through it. Like, uh, not Soma. It's the one before that. Amne- uh, Amnesia. Amnesia, The Dark Descent. Yeah. I hit a point not too terribly far in where I was like, the sense of creeping dread is just too much, and I need to punch out. Like, this is, like... I, you didn't make it to the infamous chase sequence? I'm not sure you would have lived. <laughs> no, no. I was just like, I'm I'm done, I'm done. I got my character to a nice, cozy room with a, a couple glowing candelabras. Uh, door is shut, and I he seems like... I think he'll be good to re- live the rest of his life in this in this tiny little room. Uh, so that's that's where I left it. 
Fair enough. Uh, so Peter from Sheffield, uh, I don't know if the, I don't know if we'll have answers to this question, but I, I want to read Peter's story. Ahoy, comrades. Longtime listener, first time thrower of chum into the question tank. I wanted to ask whether any of you have an example or even better, an amusing anecdote of yourself or a friend seeing an all-time classic piece of media for the first time and just very much not getting it. In the years before the world got coved, coveted, uh, I oh, used to try and cute. attend regional film festivals when I got the chance, particularly when there was an opportunity to see a classic film shown in a striking location. My favorites of these were by far a dusk screening of The Descent in a Derbyshire cave complex, popularly Ooh. known as The Devil's Arse Crack. Oh, that rules. A candlelit screening of Dracula in an old Harbor Master's house in Belfast. And at that same Belfast Film Festival, a midnight showing of 2001 A Space Odyssey in Thompson Dry Dock, where the Titanic was constructed. I want to go here. Said Dry Dock, <laughs> as you might surmise is a fuck-off enormous concrete hole in the ground, some 415 long by 46 feet wide by 21 feet deep. They built a temporary steel staircase down into it and projected the film directly onto a canvas on the far narrow wall. It was a one-off showing on an early winter night, and there were maybe 30 seats total. I was extremely fortunate to snag a ticket for myself and two for my friends who had never seen the film before they sold out. I think it was chosen to mirror the trench of the Clavius moon base in the film, and it was absolutely gobsmacking. Now, 2001 is already a fairly demanding film when seen for the first time, and I can't imagine Mm -hmm. the frankly absurd setting made it any less so. I was elated, but my two friends, I think, were not totally sure what the hell I dragged them to. And they they were less altogether pleased with being stuck out in a sort of cold, damp, boat latrine for the duration and increasingly became restless. Mostly this manifested as confused sideways glances at each other and then at me and conspicuous tugging of coats and scarves, but ramped up considerably during the Jupiter and beyond the infinite sequence of the film. My friends now freezing cold and already shell shocked by the previous 90 plus minutes hit a point of absolute hysteria. They could not conceal their confusion or annoyance any longer. And upon the final image of what I've since referred to as the space baby appearing on the screen, they both simultaneously and loudly exclaimed, oh, for fuck's sake, just as the music (laughs) ebbed, instantly cutting through every ounce of cinematic tension that had been built up for the previous two hours. We were sat near the back of the screening, and I think probably about two-thirds of the attendants turned around in their chairs to scowl at us, though it's possible that number looms larger in my memory than it was in reality. My friends, equal parts embarrassed and bemused and not unconvinced, I dragged them there as some sort of an elaborate prank, fought to contain crying with laughter all the way through the credits and well into their first pint after we left. I can only help my attempt to furnish you with a recreation of that ridiculous event is half as funny to you as the memory is to me. They have since both come around to appreciating the film, but it will forever be the Space Baby movie. Thanks for everything you do. Fuck turfs. Fuck the Tories. Fuck capitalism. Peter Sheffield. Uh, it is an important detail that you made them do that sober. Like that the first drink came after watching. Can you imagine how cold also like you're in a concrete channel next to the North Atlantic. Yeah. And it's early winter. Yeah. Right. Like it, this isn't like, oh, in September we're doing this. It's and, damp like, and it's cold. A- 
And that's a very, like, I, 2001 is a movie that I respect. I like, do not like it. I do not, I don't need to watch it. I watched it once in college yep. and was like, damn, I'm good. Like, important to cinema. Do not give a shit about damn. it. <laughs> like, um, and the notion that this person drags up people to just the most horrid conditions, dead sober, to watch this for the first time is, you, I mean, you're like, you're lucky they were this kind to you, is is what I'll say. <laughs> so, I know, I need Peter from Sheffield to like let us know when cool stuff. It like, like, look, like what an incredible series of viewings though. This is a good. This oh, is a good I mean, it, this is a good. It's a good, good hobby. It, it, you know, we had this conversation years ago on the podcast in which it was like we had Austin on the show. Maybe Danielle was still here. In which it was like, you know. What do you do in situations where you want to introduce something that means a lot to you to other people? And then what are reasonable expectations to have when you do that? Um, because like you know, it can be frustrating to be disappointed if someone doesn't think the work that means a lot to you ends up meaning a lot to them. And I feel like an like an exclamation point version of this is to go to a one-off like special showing. It's not like we just went to the theater and like, Hey, they show classic movies on Sunday nights and the tickets are $3. It's like, no, like it's a, it's a, you took seats away from people that would have had a profound and moving experience with this film to have your buddies super annoyed. And on some level, that rules <laughs> on another level. It's it's incredible. I que- I question though. I do question a little bit. I think anyone who goes to a screening like this, you're aware you're seeing it with an audience that's primarily there for the novelty because it sounds really cool. Yes. But also like yeah. I can't, you're going to be like you're introducing an element of physical discomfort that does not attend most like movie screenings. Like I just don't imagine Correct. this is anything up other than a very weird experience, right? Because like you can hear that you can hear the ocean probably shipping traffic in the channel uh there's four dx and then there's going down to a makeshift set of stairs next to where they can you imagine the how it sounded in with the speakers like booming off i imagine very echoing. yeah it's like <laughs> yeah. yeah so i i do think like anyone there you knew what you're letting yourself in for uh i'm amazed that more people weren't drunk because this seems like this seems like quintessential like let's get loaded up and if we make it down the giant staircase we'll watch this movie <laughs> But also someone is going to have a flask of whiskey in their coat and we're going to pass it along. Yeah. But all, the problem there, though, is I'm sure there's nowhere to piss down there, Rob. So anytime you have to piss during this long movie, Kirk, well, Kirk, it all depends Kirk on going how far up the they, metal stairs. How far down have they illuminated the, the, the channel uh, the, of the dry dock? Because <laughs> uh, it's all there's a certain point where it, it's all washing out to sea. Uh, all of a sudden, like, wah. just yeah uh it like it it does it that that part does seem that part does seem challenging i I wonder maybe they set up a portage on down somewhere in there because it does seem like you can't you can't be like yeah yeah climb this 40 foot staircase uh and the movie's so long too very long um or it, it feels longer than it is because of the the pace which is a part of why i don't like it but yeah very funny thank you for sharing if if people have other stories of introducing a, a work and what having it go completely awry please please write in 
please let us know. <laughs> I would like to hear something similarly bad uh, that has happened to our audience. Uh, let's see. Here's a good one. Uh, Mike writes, dear waypoint, what is your go-to goblin mode snack? I'm talking the late night raid on the fridge or pantry, put some stuff together. that maybe in non goblin mode. You wouldn't. My current favorite is what I call the bad breath special, which is a slice of pumpernickel bread topped with a generous smear of cream cheese, anchovies, white onion, and some hot sauce. Uh, Bro, are you? I like good? anchovies a lot. That's a little bit much for me, Mike. Anyway, what like what are some less degenerate? Do people have less degenerate goblin mode snacks? It's like it's candy. I it's and ice cream. Yeah, I I don't like it being in the house because I have trouble controlling myself around it. Like if there's a pint of ice cream. I, I will just, well, it's lunchtime. Like, I'll just, I can't just have, like, like I'll take it out, open up the pint, and have a spoon and just have one bite. Like, I can't do that. Like, I've I, I've had 10 or 12 Oreos, Oreos. I don't, I'm furious that my wife brought spooky Halloween Oreos into the house because I will, I can't eat one. I will eat five and think about it later. And then, and especially if it's an evening where, like, I'm not having anything to drink tonight. It's like, well, I don't have anything to drink. Well, I'll just, I can have like four or five Oreos instead. Yeah. Like, that's not how, that's not how that works. Um, no, it is. <laughs> so I, I, I asked my wife to hide stuff like that so that if I can get, if I have to search for it, I can, I can talk myself down. But if it's just like open up the pantry and there's a bucket of M&Ms, like scoop. <laughs> Ren, do you have a little goblin mode treat? I think my goblin mode treat is, uh, well, I I do just love to put some hot sauce on something. Mm-hmm. I'll put hot sauce or salsa on fucking anything. I don't care if I if I'm if I'm really go, if I'm really on one, I will just take a piece of bread out of the fridge and just put some hot sauce on that shit and then eat it. Like I I don't know. When, once I am on my sleep meds, all all bets are off. I will I will put salsa on a piece of bread. I'll put anything on a piece of bread. Eat that shit right up. <laughs> so uh, I'm definitely there, there with you, Patrick. Uh, ice cream is one, especially uh, if it's like ice cream with lots of like fussy little bidness in it. Oh, yeah. Like if there's a little, like if it's a Ben and Jerry's, like I gotta excavate a little morsel that's in there. Oh, you oh. know. Oh, and, and, in ter- and in getting that little peanut butter and chocolate thing. Oh, did I get a... This is not just a spoonful. Like I have, I have now taken out a Titanic-sized <laughs> bite in pursuit of that candy. Did I go out of my way to do that? Maybe. Who could say? No one's looking at me right now. Yeah. No. Me digging. Me digging into a pint of Ben and Jerry's is like the uh, opening of Jurassic Park, with like people like dusting off the dinosaur bones. Like uh, <laughs> we've revealed, we've revealed the malted milk ball uh, <laughs> fossil. It's like great, great, great. Let it, let us know once uh, once we've almost got it out of there. Uh, the other thing that uh, popcorn. I fucking love mm. popcorn, especially if I have the tasty little powders to put on it. Like if mm. I make it buttery, but then also like white cheddar. Oh, that's heaven. Uh, you did. That was that was one of your specific orders from when we did. Um, we were watching. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Twilight. Uh, and that's good. Like I, like a- smart corn, like white cheddar stuff. That's that's good. Take that. But oh, my goodness. Like just a fresh bowl of popcorn with like the white cheddar powder. Oh, heavens. 
Perfect. <laughs> Bro said, <laughs> oh, enough. heavens. Uh, for our 10th anniversary, my wife and I went downtown to Chicago, like rented a hotel room, got a fancy dinner, and then went and saw Nope. And the theater that was closest to us was one where it's like, a, it's like adult centered. It's like not really meant for kids. So it's got a bar and like the concession stand. There isn't a concession stand. There's just a bunch of huge tablets and you just put that in and you put your seat number and they come and bring it out to you, which, you know, sounds like it could be convenient. And even though we'd had an enormous expensive dinner, you need no more food. Like the booze is enough. Um, my wife's goblin mode is, is popcorn. And she doesn't need a lot. She doesn't need a huge tub. She like sometimes we'll just analyze what's the cheapest option. And sometimes it's getting the kids thing and then keeping the kids stuff in her purse to give to the children later so she can have the tiny little popcorn thing. And so we would go up to, we go up to the the giant tablet and the only popcorn option for whatever reason is the tub. Like, just, like, a whole ex- excavating popcorn out of a hole and giving it to you. And she's like, well, I don't need that much. And it was also, like, $18. Like, it was so much money for they popcorn. Can't even, they won't even do – they used to at least, like, cheat you honestly by being, like, infinite refills. Right. And then you'd be like, uh, and so, I'll get the small one. But then you only go once, and you still overpaid right. for the idea of infinite But I'd refills. rather pay yeah. – Eight dollars for the small, rather than twenty dollars for this like mammoth size, meant clearly for a family. And so I said, "Well, let's go and watch the opening scene." And when the movie slows down for a minute, I'll I'll go talk to someone and see if I can figure it out. Came back out, and they they were like, "No, sorry, you know, like that's the only thing we're offering right now." So I took that credit card out, slid it through. I was like, "Hey, it's a tenth anniversary. Like, you know, not going to be a stickler about stuff tonight." Um, but sat back down and she's like, were you able to find something smaller? And I said, I did. I was like, I was able to talk to someone and they found something smaller on the menu. So don't sweat it. It should be out in a couple minutes. And then, you know, like 10 minutes later, like, like King Kong, like, boom, boom, boom. I could, you could like feel it coming down with the person delivering it. And she looks over in abject horror. You didn't get that. That's not our, like, send it back. And I was like, no, it's all they had. And it's yours now. And she proceeds to devour <laughs> half of it. Ask me to take it away from her. And then immediately falls asleep. <laughs> Incredible. Good. Morally good. <laughs> Absolute queen. Uh, all right. I think, uh, I think that will do it for this week. Uh, if you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Facebook and YouTube, Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klepek. Ren. You can follow me on Twitter at Raven, and you can follow me exploring Silent Hill at twitch.tv slash Raven. You can check out what we published on waypoint.vice.com. Uh, and hey, thanks to Waypoint Plus, we've been able to have a bunch of fun streams lately. Uh, Natalie and I are making... You know, we were very confident. We're like, boy, we got to be near the end of System Shock. And then people were like, you're nowhere near the end of System Shock. You're like, you're maybe not even halfway. It's, you've, you've done nothing. And I was like, we found an elevator that goes up to deck eight. How many, how much system can there be shocking? Uh, but apparently quite a bit more. So we're going to have to, once again, we have to sort of recalibrate uh, what we're doing to, to bring the System Shock 101 to a close. Uh, uh-huh. Kato and I uh, also had some great races on Motorsports Monday. Patrick has been uh, I've been enjoying 
uh, Cyberpunk? You've been you've been digging it. Yes, I I'm not over the moon yeah. about it, but this was like kind of the perfect way to play it. Like I like it. Um, it, uh, you know, I can't speak to how it has changed, you know, since it since it came out, but I'm I'm having a good time with it. It is not The Witcher Three, but like I'm I'm glad I'm playing it. I'm glad I'm you know coming to it at this point. Um, and people should come along for the journey. Um, as I play it uh, all day, once a week until until we make it to the end. And for our Waypoint Plus listeners, uh, we have another sports podcast for you uh and that'll be hitting i think the the main feed later later this week uh but patrick and i had to go through uh our feelings as it becomes increasingly apparent that the sky's the limit for the chicago bears Absolutely. Uh, we have a dynasty in the making and mm-hmm. everyone needs to get in on the ground floor uh, I forgot what it's like to be bad when you're this good. Oh my god! Exactly. I hubris is such a beautiful thing. Uh, and well. uh, I think next week we're going to be watching Hail Caesar for my turn. Uh, and actually, no, I think next I think next week might actually be manhunting on Miami Vice, uh, which I'm discussing. I, say, I saw Alex watching that. On, uh, he's, he said they were he was watching it on Twitter. Look, the the council is divided about how we interpret Miami Vice uh, in the year of our Lord, uh, 2022. Uh, So it it should be a very bracing discussion. Uh, But next week we are recording, at least, uh, our our, my turn on Hail Caesar, uh, the the Coen Brothers comedy of 1950s Hollywood. Uh, If that sounds good or you just want more Waypoint, you can go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only do you get access to our premium feed, but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. And if you want to show not just support, but zeal, go to waypointgeneralstore.com and buy some of our fine Waypoint merch, including our special anniversary edition art, uh, celebrating six years of Waypoint. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we're calling time on this, mo- uh, this, uh, this whole week. We'll talk to you again next week. Until then, fuck capitalism. Go home. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.